Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. This morning, I want to talk to you about something that... Um, that God has just been stirring in me over the last little while. It's been amazing. We're so privileged here to have the staff team that we do. I love listening to Pastor Alex and Brenda preach and my dad when he does and the others here preach. I believe so deeply um, that through that breadth of gifting and that breadth of knowledge and that breadth of understanding, we are together blessed more richly and deeply. I'm so grateful for what God is doing in their lives and for what he communicates through them. I'm so grateful that we're different and that he's gifted us in different ways. And so as I've been listening the last few weeks with you and and been tracking along with you, God has been speaking to me just some things in my own devotional life, and I I just want to share them. There's times where, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but there's times for me when I'm reading something and I come to like an immediate dead stop. There's only a few things in my life that'll do that. One would be my wife. The other one would be God. The other one would be pastries. Um, If I see them in a store window like Beechwood, they're not technically pastries, but it's the best we can get around here. I was just in Montreal a few weeks ago, and uh, it's amazing how long you could take just staring through the glass of a pastry case, just examining all the wonderful things that are in there. Anyway, so that stops me dead in my tracks too. But this thing that I read a few weeks ago just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just want to share to you this, with you this morning a few thoughts about this, because I, I, I believe it's tied to something that I don't even know that I can express or articulate uh, very well right now, but I believe that this is tied to what I feel is on the heart of God for the church in this day and in this season. And by church, I mean you and me <laughs> together, not this building, um, not an organization, but on the people of God. I believe that God is preparing us to step into a new season. And um, that new season is gonna require uh, some different tools, some different approaches than the last seasons in the life of the church. And I appreciate what God has done, uh, even if I reflect on my own life through you know, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, God has always has a purpose for what he's doing on the earth through his church. And I believe we're stepping into a unique one, not unique in that it's never happened before, but I believe it's, it's a return to something. If you have a Bible with you, um, you can open it or your phone, you can get it out. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen and you can read. Um, those cards, you can take notes on them. There should be pens and things like that. But the first place I want you to look with me is in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. That book is right after Daniel, if you're looking for it. And Hosea is writing in this unique time. And he's, he's writing as Israel is just experiencing 
a shift and a move. For several hundred years, Israel, since really the reign of David and his son Solomon, Israel has walked away from God. Israel has lived with a divided heart. They've embraced the cultures around them. They've embraced the, the idolatry and the worship practice of the nations around them. They've embraced the pagan rituals and routines. They've basically, for 250 years-ish, they've said, we'll keep doing what we do on Sunday, but we're just going to mix in a whole bunch of this other stuff just to round ourselves out. We don't want to leave anyone out. We don't want to miss anything. So God is good in everything, and we believe him, and we trust him. But it's, you know, it's fine if we just add in all of these other practices. And so that's what they did. And the nation lived with this divided heart. And the fruit of that over generations was not just um, that their hearts grew hard and that they experienced judgment and discipline of God, but it resulted in actually them closing down the temple, which was their place of worship in the Old Testament. That was the place of the presence of God. So this kind of decision to allow into their lives a, a, a plethora of other religious practices, of other ideologies, of other things, of other gods, went from you know, causing them individually hardness of heart and whatever to, to actually the nation shutting the doors to the very place of the presence of God. And Hosea arrives at this knife edge in history and he arrives at kind of the tail end of one of these whole seasons. But God is about to do something through a king, Hezekiah, that will change everything. For the first time in 250 plus years, we have a king, Hezekiah, who the Bible says was faithful to the Lord in everything he did. Hezekiah began the process of returning Israel's heart to God. But before he did that, Hosea wrote this, and I, I just think it's so amazing in a book filled with judgment and discipline, which is part of God's character, by the way, in a book filled with judgment and discipline, this jumped out at me. Hosea 2, 14 and 15. This is God speaking of the nation of Israel. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert. And I did a full stop right there. Whoa, what? What are you talking about? And I, literally, I was sitting on my couch, and I just put my Bible down on my lap, and I went, wait a minute. I wasn't expecting that line next. I was expecting something different. I will lead her into a fruitful land. I will lead her into all of, you know, uh, uh, harvest and plenty. And I'll lead her into fulfillment and joy and peace and hope and all of these things. That's what I was expecting. But he says, I'm going to win her back and I'm going to lead her into the wilderness. And then I just feel like God just in that moment just reminded me. And he just said, Andrew, sometimes it's me that's leading you into the wilderness. Why are you blaming the devil for everything in your life? 
Why do you look at this and at that and you look at your circumstances and you look at things going on around you and in this world and all of these things and we just go, the devil did it, the devil did it, the devil did it. And I just felt like God came to a full stop in my life and he said, it's not always the devil. Sometimes he is doing that. His job is to steal and kill and destroy. Yeah, he does that. But actually sometimes it's God himself who's leading you into the wilderness. And in those moments when we dig our heels in and, and we have this picture of him kind of pushing us from behind and we're digging our heels in, we think that we're resisting something that, that we should resist, but God is saying, no, 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 don't resist this. I'm walking you into the wilderness for a reason. And he goes on to describe what that reason is. The third line, I will speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. He goes on to say, she will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Israel. When that day comes, says the Lord, and this right here, is the heartbeat of God for our lives. Old Testament, New Testament, 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years from now. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. The heartbeat of God for your life and my life is intimacy and relationship and love. And one of the mechanisms that he uses in our lives is the wilderness. Sometimes it's actually God's heart to bring us into the wilderness so that he can achieve some things in our life that cannot be achieved when we're in that place of blessing, when we're in that place of hope, when we're in that place of joy, when we're in that place of overflow. I want to leave you with a few thoughts here. Why does he do it? Why in the world would God lead us into the wilderness? We see from this just a quick anecdotal glossing over to win our hearts back. God's purpose in walking with you into the wilderness is to win your heart back. Not win your intellect back, not win your mind back, not win religion back, and not win duty and practice back, to win your heart. He walks us into the wilderness. He's working in the wilderness. If there was a title for today, it would be, he works in the wilderness. He works there and he walks us in there because he wants to win us back. And he only knows that it's in the wilderness that he's got the best chance to get our attention, to speak over us, to speak truth and love and life over us. He walks us into the wilderness so that he can win us back, so that we turn our eyes to him recognizing his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and respond to him and his heart. There's a part of God's character that 
that works like any good father does to discipline us. And we need that in our life. We all do. We need discipline. But the, the end of discipline for God is not punishment or judgment or condemnation. The end of that wilderness season or that trial or that testing or whatever one of, metaphor you want to use for it is to actually win our heart back. I believe that God in this season in the life of the church is on a mission to win its heart back because we've replaced intimacy with structure. We've replaced intimacy with all of these other contraptions and we're distracted. We're going 100 miles an hour and we've got a million things on our phones and our computers and our TVs and all of these things. And sometimes God needs to walk us into the wilderness to get our attention so that he can speak to us and win our heart back. Among other things, I believe that's why through scripture, one of the reasons why God walks us into the wilderness. If he's gonna walk us there, then what is he trying to do in us there? I also believe firmly that the purposes of God are never just aimless. He's not just kinda playing a, you know, a, a game of, I'm thinking of those, I can't even think of the word. That, those machines, they're so old, I can't even remember the word. You know where you press the button and the ball goes all over the place? Pinball, yeah. <laughs> When's the last time you played one of those? I couldn't even remember it. But it's not just randomly bonging us around all of the place and all over the place. His heart is to actually have purpose in everything he does. So what is the wilderness for in our life? I want to read to you a few scriptures. We can just hop to the New Testament. Hebrews 5. I think I might have read this on the same day and stopped again in my track. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayer and pleading with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Get this, verse 8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. If you have a pen, circle that word and underline it. He learned. Jesus didn't come out of the womb possessing everything instantly that he needed. He actually had to fulfill faithfulness to God. He had to be trusted by God. He had to grow and learn. So how did he learn? Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. He learned from the wilderness. After he was baptized and it says the Holy Spirit pushed him, led him, drew him into the wilderness for testing and trial. He learned through that. He learned in his life how to carry faithfulness to God through the trials of the wilderness experiences. He learned through what he suffered. He learned through what he was willing to endure for God in obedience. The purpose of wilderness experiences for us is to strengthen us 
not to crush us, not to destroy us, not to pulverize us. It's to strengthen us. It's to increase our capacity and our endurance to run the race that God has called us to. The purpose for the wilderness is to grow us in maturity. We don't grow in maturity when the big fat grapes are sitting right in front of our face and we're just picking them off. I remember last summer we were in Kelowna this time of the year and it's uh, cherry season uh, a few weeks ago, this time of the year. And their cherries there are way better than ours here. They're way bigger. And this house that we were staying at, we were fortunate to stay at, was right on uh, Lake Okanagan. Beautiful, huge house. Had an orchard in the front yard. And literally every morning, I would go to these trees. We were the only ones picking them. And we would eat thousands of cherries a day. It was amazing. Amazing. But we don't grow and learn and be strengthened when everything's just right in front of us. There's seasons in our life, these wilderness seasons, where God is saying, I'm the one leading you there because I wanna win your heart back and I wanna see you grow and I wanna see your capacity increase and I wanna see your endurance increase. And so I'm gonna lead you there. Are you willing to go with me? James chapter one. Verse two and four say, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, not needing anything. In verse 12, if you jump down, he says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God wants to grow you spiritually in the wilderness. He wants to increase your power and authority. The Bible says that when Jesus walked out of the wilderness, he walked out in the power of God. There was a transaction that took place through that testing and through that wilderness that actually increased his spiritual authority and power. The wilderness equips us with greater authority and greater power and also greater obedience and endurance. Just jump back to Hebrews 5 with me few pages to the left. I've been for maybe half of the year, God has been speaking to me about seasons. And it all started just before Easter, when I was just studying and reflecting on a lot of the Easter story. And I came across this verse. And it was Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to God and and he's, and he's crying out to God. And then at the end of this prayer, there's this crazy transition where he says, all right, God, I'm ready. Bring on the new season. I'm ready for whatever you have next. And there was this sense in me like, whoa, wait a minute. How did Jesus just trigger a new season in his life? 
Oftentimes, we stumble our way into new seasons. We, we have no idea what season we're in. We don't know what to expect from life in these moments and in these days, and we're just kind of flying blind, and we're kind of walking around, kind of staggering from one thing to the next. But Jesus, in three years, was able to fulfill the purpose of God because he understood seasons and times. And he understood what was necessary and needed in each moment of his life. And so he was able to say to the Father, I've completed my assignment up until this point. I'm done and I'm ready. I'm equipped. I'm prepared. I have everything that you have given me that I need to walk into this new time that you're calling me to, which was the cross for him. And I believe that God is challenging us, one, to be alert and aware, to understand the season we're in. If we don't understand the season we're in, we're not going to know what it means to be faithful in the season we're in. Oftentimes, we're looking at history. We're looking back in the rearview mirror 20 years to try and figure out, you know, God, you did this in the past, and this worked in the past, and this didn't work in the past, and I don't know what I'm quite doing here, but I'm just kind of meandering around. And I believe that God wants to give us clarity with seasons and clarity in the wilderness, like nothing else, will prepare you for what's next. So how do we walk through the wilderness? Jesus gives us a few examples. Hebrews 5, 7. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. That word in the Greek for prayer literally is entreated. He entreated God. He, with passion and devotion, he begged God to work in his life. He begged God to move on his behalf. With, with passion and devotion, he entreated God to do what he only could do, to be faithful to him, to equip him, to do everything in his life that he needed to do. He, with loud cries and prayers, walked in intimacy with God. The very first tool that you and I need to walk through the wilderness is a return to intimacy with God. Like it said in Hosea, the point is that God wants to get your heart. He wants to get your attention so that he can reach your heart. And he's inviting you and I in the church in this season to return to intimacy with him. We will never make it out of the end of the wilderness if we do not develop deeper intimacy with God. I believe that's why so often we get frustrated and angry with God. Why am I doing the same thing over and over again? Why does the same thing happen over and over and over? It's because we're trying to walk through the wilderness without intimacy. And we keep walking around in a circle, not knowing where we're going. God is saying, I want to lead you out of the wilderness, but to do it, you have to develop intimacy with me. How long could you go, Andrew, in prayer and communion with me, describing who I am? How long could you go? How many words could you put together that express my glory and my majesty, my character and my nature, my goodness and my faithfulness, my righteousness? How long could you go? How long could you go in conversation with me? 
not just telling me everything you need, but talking with me, pleading with me, entreating me to work on your behalf. That word pleading, the Greek is literally to extend an olive branch. God, I'm pleading with you in my life to work. I'm pleading with you, I'm crying out to you. You know, often we think, and this is something someone else challenged me with earlier in the, in the year, in the winter. We often think of the Lord's Prayer as like the entry level, the kindergarten class of prayer. I've been deeply in the Lord's Prayer for the last seven months every morning for about an hour, 45 minutes or an hour every morning in the Lord's Prayer. And I've had to repent for my arrogance in believing that Jesus's model for communion with his father was somehow trivial. Just because we recited at rote through school and in corporate gatherings doesn't actually mean it's insignificant. Jesus's opening remarks of that prayer start with the word father. And that word father carrying this deep, personal, intimate, connected relationship. When the disciples heard Jesus praying, it was unlike anything they'd ever witnessed in their lives before. They were used to religious prayer. They were used to piety. They were used to the big jargon in the words. But when they heard Jesus pray, it was not like anything they'd heard before because he prayed and connected with his father on a deep, intimate level that they'd never experienced before. The way that we walk through the wilderness is the same way that Jesus did. And that's by prioritizing intimacy and time with God in our life. Time in the presence of God, even if you don't know what to say or what to do. Time offering yourselves to him. Actually taking your schedule, your daily schedule, and flipping it on its head and saying, God, I'm going to give you the most prized, most coveted, most uh, beneficial hour of my day. God, the, the time that I spend on everything else in this time, I'm giving it to you because my relationship with you is worth it. I can receive from you things that I can get from nothing else in life. Intimacy with his father was a starting point. It goes on to say, God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. This is something that I actually believe God has been speaking to me so deeply. And what I believe is one of the markers of a turning point in the life of the church coming is a return to deep reverence. That word for reverence in the Greek, I want to actually read it with you. Eulabia means awe fear of God, discretion, caution to prevent, and timidity. It's fear conjoined with love and hope, not a slavish dread, 
but love. Jesus expressed in his life not only intimacy, but deep reverence and the fear of God. I believe that that will be one of the markers of this generation and the one to come. When you read the histories of movements of God across the earth, the great revivals of history all begin with the fear of God coming. It happened in the book of Acts. The fear of God came and people were convicted of their need for God. It happened in the Old Testament when when the kings of Israel in the midst of their sin would sit up and make place for the reverence of God. The fear of God would come on the nations around them. Here's what I want you to know about the fear of God. One, I don't know everything about it. Proverbs 8, 14 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred toward evil. Often we quote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Great. Well, what does that mean? What is the beginning of wisdom and reverence in our life? It's hatred toward evil. It's actually hating the things that offend the heart of God, that grieve the Holy Spirit in our life, that quench his activity in our life. The fear of the Lord begins with a deep awe and reverence for the holiness of God. The Bible says that he's a consuming fire of holiness, not one to destroy us, but one to refine us and renew us want to reshape us. We walk through the wilderness when we develop a new sense of the fear of the Lord in our life. The fear of the Lord for me looks like every morning when I'm before God in prayer, the house is quiet, everyone is asleep. It looks like me saying, search my heart, God, and know me this morning. Again, know me, search me, see if there's anything in me that offends you, if there's any way that I've grieved you or quenched you or separated myself from fellowship with you because of sin, anything I've believed in, anything I've said, anything I've looked at, any place I've gone, anything I've done, anything that I've spoken to my wife or to my family, anything at all, God, search me and know me. If there's anything that has grieved you, I want to know because I want to be connected to you. I want to walk in the fear of you. It's very quiet. (laughs) I want to read to you Psalm 103, which is a good kind of illustration of this. And there's a Hebrew word for worship and praise that's used. And that word is is Barak, not like Barack Obama, but Barak. It's a different Barak. And that word literally means to kneel, 
to bless God as an act of adoration, to praise, to salute, to thank. It embodies the notion, so get this, so David is writing this psalm, and he said, this is the kind of worship that carries with it the fear of God. It embodies this notion of the king's subjects approaching them, approaching the king in his throne on bended knees, but keeping their eyes on the king, offering to him everything. God, king, you can have this in my life. King, I'm bringing you a tribute today. I'm bringing you everything I have today. I'm gonna bend my knees before you, but I'm gonna keep my eyes on you because you're holy and righteous, because you're worthy of everything that I could possibly bring. You're worthy of my whole life. I'm gonna bend to you, but God, I'm gonna look at you as I do it as a sign of reverence and fear and awe. And David goes on to say in Psalm 103, let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise you. That's that Barak praising. That's that kneeling but looking in reverence and fear. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he's done for me. God, you've blessed me in my life. Even though I'm in the wilderness, God, your word says that you'll never leave me or forsake me. Even when I'm here and I'm feeling a hundred miles from you, God, you're right here. I praise you. I worship you. God, when I feel like the world is caving in, I come to you in praise and adoration because I know that you're faithful. You're a king who's kind and just and good. God, I trust you. Let all that I am praise the Lord, may I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sin and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercy. He fills my life with good things. My mouth is renewed, my youth, not my mouth. My youth is renewed like the eagles. When we walk in the fear of God, it's not a slavish fear that is looking to cut and destroy and pulverize. It's a fear that says, God, before I click on that or before I say this or before I go there, God, I believe that you're holy. I believe that you're righteous. And I believe that you're worth more than this garbage I'm tempted to do right now. God, before I go look at porn online or on my cell phone, before I violate the covenant of my marriage bed, before I violate the mind that you've given me, God, I'm going to put it down. I'm going to resist the devil and run away because I fear you. God, your holiness and your righteousness are ever before me. God, would you give us that fear that leads us to hate what opposes God? If we wanna see revival in our families and revival in our neighborhoods and revival in our street, it's not gonna come from hype. It's not gonna come from uh, big carnivals that we throw and all of these things. It's gonna come from us, you and me, walking in the fear of God, in the quietness of our closet where we pray, where we meet with God in the secrecy of our internal life, our own hearts. It's walking in purity with God in these areas. When we begin to walk in the fear of God in our life, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us like a partner. He strengthens us, but he also brings conviction to us. 
and conviction to those around us. This is what happened all through Scripture. When the Holy Spirit descended in the book of Acts and God was powerfully at work, Ananias and Sapphira, that story, you may know it. They challenge and they lie to God and he wipes them out. They get killed. And what does it say? The fear of God came down and people knew that they needed to put their trust and their faith in God. We'll be able to walk through the wilderness when we walk in the fear of God, when we walk in intimacy with God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Last week, I was in Montreal, as I mentioned, and just kind of spending some ministry time there um, with a summer high school student um, short-term mission discipleship program. And they meet in this school. It's if you know Montreal, it's a uh, beautiful private Catholic high school across the street from St. Joseph's Oratory on Mount Royal in Montreal. And they have their worship services in a cafeteria, and there's a couple hundred students there. And we had just got there just for a couple days. We, they had already been into their program for over a week. And, and so we were just kind of hanging back and observing and sort of being a fly on the wall. And we were in one of the worship experiences. And I saw something that just stirred me so deeply that I believe represents this posture of prayer and intimacy and reverence for God that I hadn't seen in a while. We're in worship in this young girl who's just kind of to the side, but a little bit in front of me. She goes to one of the pillars that's holding up the floor above us, this big concrete pillar. And she pressed her face as hard as she could into this pillar. And I could see out of the corner of my eye from an angle that she was weeping and she was banging the pillar. I don't know what she was praying for, but she was crying out to God for something in her life. And with her face pressed tightly against this pillar, she was calling out to God. And then she stepped back and she quietly was worshiping. And then she walked back to this pillar and pressed her face there again and was banging her hand on it, approaching her father with pleading, with prayer, with reverence and humility asking him to move. I don't know what she was asking. And I just felt the Holy Spirit in that moment reaffirm to me, Andrew, this is the chief, chief position of your heart that you need to live in. I think another example of what it looks like for us is actually demonstrating physically for God that we honor him, we worship him. It looks like getting down on our knees beside our bed or in our living room or 
wherever you are at your home, getting on your knees and calling out to God to work, to renew you, to strengthen you, to fill you, to lead you, to lead your family, to fulfill his promises to you, to guide you, calling out to God on your knees. I think if we really want to understand what the fear of God is like, it's out of the choice in our heart to go from our knees to the ground, prostrate before him, saying, God, would you move? Would you move in my life? Would you renew and restore? Would you breathe hope and your power and your strength over me? Would you heal my family and my marriage? Would you teach me to raise my kids to honor you? Would you bring revival and renewal to your church? Father, we call out to you and we're so thankful that you never leave us or forsake us that there's no distance we can run from your presence, that your love for us, God, is secure, that you, God, will give us strength when we need it. You give us everything we need for life and for godliness. Father, we're thankful that even in the wilderness you're there, that even in our darkest hour, God, even in when we're walking through trial and storm and temptation, Father, you're right there beside us. We thank you that we don't walk alone, but that we have a good father, a good father who loves his children. We thank you that we're adopted by you. Father, we thank you that you lead us in your grace and in your mercy. God, that your mercy triumphs over your judgment in our life. We're thankful, God. We live in fear and in reverence of you. Teach us to love you and Father, teach us to hate what is opposed to you. God, teach us to recognize the things in our life that grieve you, God, and to walk the other way. Father, teach us to live for the calling that you've placed on us, the vision that you've given us for our life, the purpose that you've put inside of us. Father, we want to walk under your authority and under your kingship and under your lordship. Father, would you do for us in this day and in this time what we cannot do for ourselves? That's what my carpet looks like a lot. softer than this. But my question to you and I is when was the last time that kind of prayer characterized your life? God is not interested in all of the tricks and gadgets and things we can throw at him. He's wanting our heart. Sometimes he leads us into the wilderness so that he can win our heart back. And we walk through the wilderness 
by walking in intimacy and prayer, by living a life of deep reverence and in the fear of God. And the third one is by walking in obedience. We walk out of the wilderness through obedience. It's obedience that strengthens us. It's obedience that deepens our spiritual authority. It's all the little things in your life and my things, my life, all those little things that we have those momentary decisions. Do I do this or do I not? God, it may seem trivial and insignificant to you in the moment, but it's not to God because it's an indication of our heart and our life. I want to end here with something else that I read recently from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah's writing right around the time of Hosea, King Hezekiah, all of these guys. And in Isaiah 28, it says this, again, in the midst of these hard words from God, these hard words about Israel's unfaithfulness and these hard words about how God is so grieved at what they're doing. In the midst of that, God says this to Isaiah, does a farmer always plow and never sow? Is he forever cultivating the soil and never planting? Does he not finally plant his seed? black cumin, cumin, wheat, barley, and emmer wheat, each in its proper way and each in its proper place, the farmer knows just what to do. For God has given him understanding. A heavy sledge is never used to thresh black cumin. Rather, it is beaten with a light stick. A threshing wheel is never rolled on cumin. Instead, it's beaten lightly with a flail. Grain for bread is easily crushed, so he doesn't keep on pounding it. He threshes it under the wheat wheels of a cart, but he doesn't pulverize it. Then get this, I, this is where I want you to walk out with this in your heart today. The Lord of heaven's armies is a wonderful teacher, and he gives the farmer great wisdom. That Hebrew word teacher is Esau, and it means to advise or tell someone what they should do based on a predetermined plan. And actually that word teacher comes with kind of the weight of that word is through oral instruction. What I believe Isaiah is reminding us of through God speaking to him, is that God has a plan for your life. And he's a good teacher. And he wants to speak to you. He knows exactly what you need in this season. He knows exactly what to do with your life to bring hope and joy and fruit to it. He's not gonna pulverize something in your life that just needs a little bit of work a different way. You can trust him with your life. He knows exactly what you and I need. Let's just stand together. I just feel like this morning,
I just feel like this morning, God's call to us, and maybe in the summer, we're used to hearing lighter and happier messages, so I'm sorry, but God's call to us, He wants our heart back. There's nothing of greater value to God than your heart. There's nothing more precious to him than your heart. And you can trust him with your life. You can trust him to know exactly today what you need. And even if it feels like you're in the wilderness, even if it feels like you're under discipline, or even if it feels like you're in a corrective moment, or even if it feels like, you know, you're ashamed of what's been going on, God knows exactly in a precise way how to walk you through to victory and freedom how to produce in your life the very things that he's put you on this earth to do. He knows what needs to be fit into which place so that your life becomes a living sacrifice and a a powerful tool in his hand. The question is, are you willing to walk in intimacy with him? Are you willing to invite the fear of God and reverence for him back into your life? And are you willing to be obedient to even the small things? We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.